my daughter will ask me the same question a million times <laughs> until she gets the outcome she wants to get. She realizes that what's important isn't whether you ask why five times or 10 times or a million times. This is Aaron May. I'm John Henry Forster, and this is Awkward Silence. Silences. <laughs> Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Awkward Silences. We are here today with Noam Siegel, who is the director of user research at Wealthfront. He's also worked at Airbnb and Intercom, and he has a PhD in psychology. So thanks so much for joining us, Noam. We're here to talk about what we can actually learn from children to do better user research. Great to be here. Jage is here, too. I'm excited for this one. It feels like a good topic. So it seems like a lot to cover. JH is about to be a dad too. So any, any useful tidbits we can throw his way. Uh, that would also be appreciated. <laughs> Congratulations. I'll, I'll try to get to that. <laughs> yeah, we can just go off. Leave it all in. Yeah. Fantastic. So no, I'm a little background. Uh, the reason we were able to connect is we were talking with, some of our client community about the recent Strive conference in Toronto, the UX yep. research-based conference. And we were asking, what were some of the best presentations? And what we heard was, you know, overall a pretty awesome event. And yours came up multiple times. And I reached out and you were incredibly gracious and agreed to join our show. So thanks so much for being here. It's my pleasure, for sure. Great. And so your presentation was about this idea of bringing a child's mindset to your interviews and to your qualitative uh, research. Could you tell us a little bit about how you landed on that topic? Absolutely. So I think researchers, perhaps more than others, are naturally curious and perhaps looking for inspiration in their work and to continuously learn about how to improve their, their practice. And when I became a father uh, personally and witnessed my, my first daughter grow up, I realized something which changed my thinking quite a bit about our research practice. And what I realized is that even though we all have some sort of relationship to children and to childhood, whether it's because we're parents or because we're aunts and uncles or simply because we were children once. Um, as time goes by, we lose that connection to what it means to be a child and think like a child. And the relationship between us as adults and children becomes very one-directional. And what I mean by that is that we think of children as little people who we need to teach things and educate, when the truth is there are amazing lessons we can learn from children, and in particular lessons that pertain very directly to our work as researchers. And so I am personally inspired by children, um, 
as a father, as just an individual, but also as someone who's in the profession of user experience research. Um, and I wanted to share a few a few lessons from my time just thinking about this and, and being a father and being around children with our broader community. So that's kind of how the topic came up in the first place. The the question I have that comes to mind that um, I know we'll get into all the specifics later is kind of the tension between you know this childlike exploration and wonder versus like the emphasis we put on expertise. Um, and and how you think about reconciling those two. I think of like, I'm going to butcher it, but there's a Kurt Vonnegut quote along the lines of, you know, I have two daughters who are great artists until they were seven years old and the teachers got a hold of them or something like that. And so there is this notion of, you know, our childlike curiosity gets dulled over time. So like, how do you think about balancing both and and putting those together um, in like a broad sense? Yeah, I, I would say that when early career researchers come to me or students come to me and they ask me about research, it is always about the tools we use and process and um, various types of analyses we might conduct um, and the technicalities of our profession. But what I'm suggesting is that even though expertise is absolutely important and we need to be considering the technicalities of our of our profession, we also want to be thinking about mindset. And so I don't look to children necessarily for very, you know, process or, or technical heavy uh, inspiration. I look to children more so for their, their mindset and their way of thinking. And I think it's important to complement that with, with expertise. And I would say that you know, perhaps paradoxically, a mature researcher, a truly great mature researcher, is a researcher that alongside a bunch of expertise is also a bit childlike, a bit childish. That's the basic, the basic premise. So let's get right into it. What do, what do kids get right that adults get wrong? So the first um, big lesson I, I shared was around keeping your eyes on the prize. And this is really about saying farewell to artificial constraints that we, that we place on ourselves. And the example I love to give is the example of the five whys, which is this classic framework which is taught in a bunch of places about how to figure out what the core problems your your users, your your customers are facing. And the way this particular technique uh, works is really quite simple. You speak to people, you ask them why five times, digging deeper and deeper into their concerns until hopefully, supposedly, after the fifth why, you will reach the core problem that they are facing. Now, this, when you think about it deeply, is actually a ridiculous notion. Um, And the, the issue here, and this is something that children do so much better than adults, is that we have completely, as researchers, lost Um, the the vision and the focus on the prize, so to speak. The prize for us as researchers is not how many times we ask a question, but rather the quality and the depth of the insight which we're able to reach. 
That's what we're looking for. Um, and that type of outcome-based thinking is something that children are masterful at. My daughter will ask me the same question a million times <laughs> until she gets the outcome she wants to get. She realizes that what's important isn't whether you ask why five times or 10 times or a million times. What's important is getting the answer you feel you need to be able to say, I've learned what I need to know. I feel confident. I feel like the decision is de-risked um, and I'm comfortable moving forward. And this is something that we often forget because we stick to very artificial constraints in our practice um, rather than focusing on the outcome we want to achieve. I love this one just because if you take the technique of the five whys and flip it on itself, it, like the first question is why five, right? It's like, it's very like, it's right there. It's like, and to your point, it's like, well, five is kind of arbitrary and is a recommendation, but the idea behind it and the intent behind it is to get to, you know, some sort of insight or some sort of answer that you need. Um, and so that, you know, it is, it's funny when you just fold it around like that. I think that's a great point. I think there is definitely some irony, I would say, in the fact <laughs> that if you apply the five whys to the five whys, <laughs> it, it all breaks down by the first why. Yeah, exactly. Um, yeah, and it just becomes unclear why we adhere to those rather random, you know, uh, constraints. Um, now, to be clear, I absolutely support using research frameworks uh, within one's research. Um, but I think it's important to apply frameworks in a, in a smart, reasonable way and to, you know, even be a bit playful about it. It's okay to combine frameworks. It's okay to um, leave some parts of a framework uh, behind and maybe use something else. Um, it's okay to try things and deviate from the very accepted path that you, you know, might learn in whatever context you're learning how to become a researcher in. Um, I, I just think that if you really want to be a mixed methods researcher, it's about a lot more than simply being a qualitative and quantitative researcher. It's about mixing and matching those frameworks and those research activities so you can achieve the outcome you're looking for, you and your team. That's the That's most important thing. It's almost how a child would approach it too, to take it back to a child, right? When <laughs> if you put a kid in a room with toys to play with, they're not going to sort of limit themselves to, well, these, these blocks one at a time. And then these dolls, the dolls end up with the blocks and it's all, I mean, talk about mixed methods. <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. And, and again, they, they keep their eyes on the prize. You know, they, they want to, you know, build a house. Uh, mm. They don't care what they're building the house with, or if it looks a bit a bit funny, but they will build a marvelous house and nothing will, will stop them on the way to that. And I just want us to do the same as researchers. So that to me is is really quite core to what we do. Do you, do you think this is more acute for people earlier in their careers? I'm just thinking about um, in other walks of life, you know, if you're learning to cook or something, when you're early on and you don't have a lot of confidence, the idea of following the recipe and doing everything very like by the book is comforting in a way, right? Because it gives you something to lean on and like the, the tools become like almost a crutch in a way that's really helpful to get started. Um, whereas if you're really confident in a discipline or an area, 
it becomes easier to know when to bend the framework or when to veer off. Do you kind of see that like more mature user researchers get this better or are they actually like more jaded and even farther away from being childlike? No, I, I absolutely agree with that point. I would also add that by applying frameworks in, in, in a very you know specific way and kind of by the book, it's also possible that more junior researchers uh, would be able to generate um, uh, more acceptance of their research from from the team. You know, if I'm able as a junior researcher to say, I applied this framework perfectly, it's a, it's a well-known, established research framework. Uh, it's it's done the trick. It's done its job in a variety of studies across industries. Then, you know, it should work for us as well. Um, I think that establishes credibility. Um, and again, I obviously believe that rigor is important. So yes, for that reason and the reason you mentioned, I definitely believe that this is even more pertinent um, for junior researchers. Um, but I would hope that as people's careers uh, evolve, they consider this particular lesson um, and maybe try to to apply it to their to their work. Great. So, so keep your eyes on the prize. Uh, lesson number one that we can learn from children. What else you got? So the second lesson was find the method in the madness. And the idea there is to embrace the irrational, um, which sounds perhaps kind of crazy um, for a, a, a research uh, uh, audience, uh, not to mention I, I really see myself as one of the more rational uh, people I know, whether that's uh, actually true or not. <laughs> um but the fact is, we, and by we I mean researchers, we only have jobs because people are irrational, thankfully. Um, uh, that's why research is needed, because, uh, you know, if everyone thought in a perfectly rational way, um, then there wouldn't be much need for psychologists or for UX researchers or, or a bunch of other, other roles. Now, the thing is, um, and this is something that Dan Ariely and others have, have presented, this type of thesis. People are not just irrational. To a large extent, they are predictably irrational. Mm -hmm. So they are irrational in ways that we can account for, given our knowledge of cognitive uh, biases um, that we tend to see. And this is knowledge that we have from decades of, of psychological research. Um, and so... We, as researchers, often try to overcome our own cognitive biases. How can I, as a researcher, be as rational as possible? Which is probably, the again, the opposite from a child uh, who probably doesn't really think that way. Children kind of, you know, embrace the madness a bit and obviously don't, you know, overly focus on behaving rationally. But we do as researchers. Um, what I'm suggesting is that given that there is a method to the madness, we should understand that. And by leveraging that knowledge, by leveraging knowledge of the consistent biases we see in people's behavior, we can be better researchers. Um, and so to make this absolutely clear, it's definitely important to overcome certain biases in our practice. For example, I am absolutely 
not advocating for uh, sampling techniques or other research techniques within interviews that discount the importance of, uh, you know, having a diverse uh, sample and, you know, other practices that might introduce needless bias into what we're doing. At the same time, if we can agree that there are systematic biases that drive behavior, let's try and find that method in the madness and research based on that and design based on that. Um, let's not try to be uh, you know, more rational than we can actually be because we are all irrational creatures. That's just a fact, just like children. It's not something we can overcome uh, completely. We can do our best. We can make sure that we're not biased in ways that are extremely problematic. Um, but at the same time, it might be just as important, if not more important, to understand these, these cognitive biases that we all share as people from childhood well into adulthood. So that's the, that's the second lesson. It makes me think a bit of um, sort of meditation where you're trying to be aware, right? If you're um, distracted or kind of, you know, come out of whatever type of, you know, meditation you're doing, it's a, an awareness and then a, a letting go of that as opposed to trying to control it and push it away, right? Like it's counter counterintuitive, but it's counterproductive to, to the goal of finding a quiet and a calm uh, to try to overly control it. Uh, I, I similarly, yeah. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree more. I think that children are so much more accepting of themselves, first and foremost. Um, and they don't dwell on, on these things as much as we do as researchers. And I think we tend to think of ourselves, or we want to believe, as I want to believe, that we are ultra-rational creatures observing the world in a fully objective manner, um, which, of course, is not the case. And we cannot solve for that, and we cannot solve for the biases that everyone else has, unfortunately. Um, but what we can do is begin by just accepting that basic fact and then working um, with what we know um, to be true about cognitive biases specifically. Um, and the more we can understand those and embrace the fact that we are irrational creatures, the better we can understand each other, the better we can understand our users. So I definitely agree with you that this all begins with some level of acceptance and finding inner peace <laughs> with the fact <laughs> that both we as researchers and all of our participants, the people that we speak to, we are all irrational creatures, just as much as we were when we ourselves were children. The only uh, the only thing I have to add on this one is if you work in the field of user research and haven't checked out some of the behavioral psychology or behavioral economics books like Predictably Irrational and you know the whole sweet nudge and others, um, they're really great reads. And the way that you see them like come up with some of these test designs and these experiments to figure out some of these biases are so clever and they seem so fun to work on. So the idea of doing that with your own users and your own app. Um, beyond just being a, a great like recommendation in general, is probably a really fun thing to work on for the team. So um, definitely would give this one a lot of thought. Absolutely. <laughs> we'll have to um, talk about our favorite cognitive biases in the after. <laughs> yeah, in the post, yeah. after. Happy, yeah. There's so happy, many good ones. Yeah. <laughs> happy to do that. Uh, do you want to move to, to tell it like it yeah, is? That's no. one of my favorites for sure. Let's do it. Let's do it. Tell us, tell us how it is. 
So, yeah, so the third lesson for, for us as researchers is tell it like it is. Um, and I used a Yiddish proverb in the presentation to, to clarify what I mean. Uh, the proverb is a half truth is a whole lie. And what I've observed as, as a parent, but we've, we've all seen this, is that children say the most you know, ridiculous, outrageous things. Um, children know what it means to, to have radical candor, to be absolutely honest, well before the book Radical Candor was, was published. Um, it seems like everyone these days is talking about Radical Candor. It, it's been a very popular book. But for children, this comes absolutely naturally. Now, a big part of being a successful, incredible researcher is all about communicating your research in a way that sticks. Um, and we are constantly as researchers battling uh, with the fact that research can be boring, it can be hard to take in, um, maybe people don't want to read it or, or take the time to read it. And the fact is, even if it's hard, we do not want, in my opinion, to obfuscate what our users, our customers, our clients are telling us by shifting away from what the full, absolute, naked truth is. Mm. And so the lesson here for us, um, which we see children do every single day in sometimes ridiculous ways, is that to help our teams focus on the true user pain points, the unmet needs, we need to share their experience in a way that is absolutely truthful to what they shared, they shared with us. Um, another way to look at this is that as user researchers, user experience researchers, um, we like to think that we are the voice of our users. This is something that comes up often as, mm -hmm. as a theme. Um, and putting aside whether that is the case or, or is not the case, I believe that to be the voice of our users, we have to represent what they're telling us uh, fairly mm -hmm. and accurately. And the only way to do that is to simply share that raw, often biting, often difficult experiences that our users go through and take it from there and focus less on, you know, the research plans and the guides and crafting this perfectly worded presentation. Um, and I've seen the impact it can have when you know, for example, we do share video clips and highlight reels from the research that we do. I've seen the impact that can have on executive teams and product leaders and, and everyone within a company. And the reason that is, is because there's just something very uh, impactful about seeing your user firsthand sharing their stories. And maybe part of the reason is that um, we can sometimes focus too much on, on how to perfectly present something rather than simply sharing the truth. Mm -hmm. Now, when you're doing qualitative research, there's a lot of truth, right? I mean, depending on how many people you're talking to and for how long and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. 
at some point you, the person sharing this information with your team or making a decision what to share, how do you, how do you, um, curate that in a way that is, uh, honest. <laughs> We've given up on objectivity a little bit, right. Uh, a reasonable amount from our last step. Um, but how do you, how do you tell it like it is without bringing everyone into every single session? I think the highly debatable thing that I'm suggesting here is that it is crucial to somewhat, if not completely, disregard the inner politics of the organization. Mm -hmm. That's what I'm really suggesting here. And I know that's a, a touchy subject. But for example, it may be the case that some of what the users are saying could be hurtful or difficult to hear for product teams who have invested, you know, a significant amount of time and effort into a product. Uh, we're all trying to do our best um, in, in, you know, design teams and in product teams. Um, I'm, I'm sure that's true. But sometimes we fail. Um, sometimes we fail users in ways that surprise us and we don't fully understand. But as researchers, it's absolutely crucial um, not to obscure our users' experiences from, from teams. Um, we cannot overly focus on whether people may be, you know, hurt, offended, um, um, disincentivized, or, or other, other words, um, mm. because they hear these insights. We have to share those, those insights, mm -hmm. uh, and we have to share those experiences. Uh, one way is, is, which I absolutely recommend of doing that, is, is indeed to bring people in, um, to have people join in on an interview or several interviews, to have people join in on, on field and ethnographic research. Um, um, but another more lightweight way is simply to, to share, you know, to share with the team some of the raw materials, some of the, the, the toughest insights the the biggest pain points mm -hmm. um i think when we when we talk about pain points we we can we can't try to minimize the pain mm -hmm. essentially uh because we don't want to to hurt anyone or or demotivate anyone but pain points are called that because they are painful often that pain is great and i have seen you know great pain myself mm -hmm. with with users who have been through very difficult experiences. Some of us do research in platforms where that might be that might be the case. You know, users who may have been discriminated against or who who had very difficult experiences where they were where they were left with a lot of uh, negative emotions. Mm -hmm. And it's important to share that with the team. Um, I, I really do believe that radical candor is a crucial component of what we do as researchers. Yeah, I mean, this is in some ways, right, uh, to continue with the, the child theme, this is the plot of uh, The Emperor's New Clothes, right, where um, everyone's going along with the fact that this guy is dressed and wearing stuff. And finally, that's the child that calls out like, but he isn't wearing anything at all. And then everyone starts mm -hmm. to see it. And so there is this, you know, they, they teach these lessons <laughs> in other uh, in other places, but we don't always uh, we don't always absorb them. Yeah. Yeah, children just have this, as you note, this this direct, unfiltered uh, view of of the world, and that's a very good starting point for for a researcher and and for a team. Um, and it's something that children do 
very naturally. And I, I want to acknowledge that, you know, children, again, they can be hurtful. They can hurt people by, by, by saying these things, by sharing these things. Um, and the more we obfuscate our users' experiences and, and hide those things and try to fit in with uh, team and company uh, politics, um, the less we're able to claim that we are the voice of our users, um, if, if that's even true in the first place. So highly debatable, maybe the most debatable topic uh, I've, I've shared so far around this theme, um, but I think it's important. All right. So what is lesson number four? Lesson number four is be a host. Um, this is, by the way, a nod to Airbnb, uh, one of my former employers. Uh, be a host is one of Airbnb's core values, or at least it used to be at the time. Um, I was inspired in particular by uh, tea parties. So children, or at least my daughter, but I've seen this with other children as well, love to host tea parties with their imaginary friends and their parents uh, and their their non-imaginary friends and whoever wants to join. Um, And it's really great. Um, You're typically having some uh, tea, uh, which of course isn't actually there, and maybe some crumpets or scones or, or other things. Um, and children are these marvelous tea party hosts, uh, you know, even more so than adult tea parties I've been to. And, you know, as researchers, you might say that one of the, the big things we do is explore what it means to be human. Um, but sometimes we might forget about the value of being authentic, and and making people comfortable and even even being occasionally silly <laughs> and these things matter because i would say one of the strongest predictors of the success of an interview especially or any other type of research i would say is building rapport mm-hmm. and starting the interview by creating this foundation uh, and this this kind of um, closeness or temporary closeness um, and authenticity and a feeling of comfort among all the participants, which then enables us to continue on to do great research and, again, um, get to the outcomes that we want out of it. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, in other words, children just have this um, incredible ability to build instant rapport with people, um, this sense of comfort. Uh, They allow themselves to be more vulnerable than we typically do. And if we can do the same with our research participants, um, I believe our results would, first of all, our our results would be much better, but we would also just have more fun in the process. Mm. And it's okay (laughs) to say that. It's it's, it's okay to say that, um, you know, unless, of course, the interviews are about a very difficult topic, and then I imagine they won't be Mm. uh, uh, fun. Um, They will be difficult. But you know, in most cases, interviews can be fun. Um, interviews can be uh, creative and and interesting, and that all comes from those first few minutes um, of the the interview or whatever project it is. I'm thinking of my own daughter's tea parties over the years, and what you're right—they are such good 
hosts. And um, I think there's an enthusiasm, right? I, I, when you think of a kind of cynical professional adult, right, who's trying to be objective in all these very adult things, um, it can really temper the enthusiasm for the interview in this case, right, that's happening. And uh, not being afraid to maybe let some, to be enthusiastic, um, I think is infectious as well, because um, people will play off that. Absolutely, absolutely. I mean, children realize that even their imaginary friends will be friendlier mm-hmm. to them um, if, if they behave in, in certain ways. So, you know, they are so attuned to their own needs that they realize that to provide for others' needs, they need to be welcoming, even if the person they're welcoming doesn't even exist in reality. And this is a a marvelous thing. And often we as researchers uh, might not be welcoming enough or vulnerable uh, enough um, to enable an incredible, deep, meaningful discussion with the people we're trying to to connect with. And we only get one shot uh, in in most cases with interviewees. Um, In most cases, we only get 30 minutes, maybe an hour. But uh, but my interviews are typically 30 minutes. It's a very short period of of time. And that means that those first few minutes are absolutely, absolutely crucial. Um, And if you're able to make people comfortable, that makes all the difference in the world. in in my presentation itself at the conference, um, I I led a little uh, a, a little uh, uh, 30, 30 second activity where I asked a few people in the audience to sketch each other um, to sketch the person to their left. I uh, adopted that technique. Or I was I was informed of it from a colleague of mine here at at Wellfront, uh, Vijay, and it's it's absolutely incredible it never fails to amaze me the response that people have to this type of exercise um it's so fun everyone's laughing everyone's apologizing to each other for their (laughs) terrible sketches and you can just feel right after this 30 second activity that there's a certain calm in the room and a certain vulnerability it's as if you can just witness you're witnessing people open up and be more willing to to share and what i learned from from that experience and others is that often a very small investment in being a host can make uh just a, a huge difference in in the outcome so that's one of the examples of uh how i actually apply this particular i want to do the uh, sketching one that sounds really fun I um I feel like I know this one's true just because, you know, in social situations, whether it be, you know, a cocktail thing or a dinner party or whatever, whenever I do do something silly or weird, I'll often follow it up with the excuse of, sorry, I'm a child. And people really do uh, let you slide when you uh, <laughs> when you put it under the, the child umbrella. Um, what uh what is point number five from the uh, from the talk? So the final lesson for my talk might be the most important one. Um, I called it Believe in Magic, and I was inspired by uh, one of my favorite authors as a child and to this day, Roald Dahl, um, who said, and above all, watch with glittering eyes the whole world around you, 
because the greatest secrets are always hidden in the most unlikely places. Those who don't believe in magic will never find it. The idea here is that we are, uh, or many of us are, I should say, perhaps not all of us, but many of us, many companies are trying to create delightful or perhaps even magical experiences. That's our goal. That's what we want to do. Um, And, you know, in in the conference, um, in my presentation, I gave the example of Disney of course, um, you know, who, uh, you know, Disney, the person and the company, they have delighted us for decades with incredible, delightful, magical animations, which are still, it's still hard to comprehend how they, they pull those things off. And children remind me every day, my daughter especially reminds me every day that we can And we should delight people in our work. Um, And that we are not done, um, in my opinion, until we do provide those magical experiences. But the first step to providing a magical experience is to believe that magic can happen. And this is something that, of course, children uh, absolutely believe in, um, but adults might not. Um, Now, you know, as researchers, as designers, as product people, we are all in one boat. We are all trying to create magic and delight. But if we don't believe in that, if we don't put our cynicism aside, our negative worldviews, if we don't reconnect to that inner child of ours, it'll be very hard for us to reach that goal in research because we'll kind of stop ourselves from reaching that point. Um, Or we might miss something that an interviewee tells us, which is really them trying to tell us what would be magical for them, what would be the biggest surprise for them. And we might just disregard that or skip over it or or ignore it as some, you know, unrealistic request by a participant. And, you know, is that really worth sharing with my leadership, my, my stakeholders, and so forth. Um, but at Wealth and Specialty, as a company, we truly do believe that a product isn't finished until it delights. And that's where we aim to be. We aim to continuously iterate on each of our products until it delights, until we see that face, which I have seen uh, with my daughter uh, many times. Um, a, A great example would be that my daughter loves aquariums. And I just will never forget the first time she saw a real live fish in an aquarium and how her eyes opened up in awe of this thing. And it made me so emotional to the point that I I cried because I, I was reminded about all of these amazing things that exist in the world that I have stopped appreciating. Um, and so... If we can agree as a research community, a design community, a product community, if we can agree that we want to delight people and we want to create magical experiences in most cases, then we need to start by believing that that can happen and connecting with that inner child. And if you do that, then the next time you interview someone, the next time you speak to someone, um, you will be able to recognize those clues that could lead you to creating those amazing experiences, um, which will obviously benefit 
your interviewees, your users, your clients, and ultimately the company you, you work for as well. There's a saying, I think, from Mr. Rogers that was, attitudes are caught, not taught. And he was using it in the context of, you know, if you want a child to love cooking, you don't just sit there and tell them that cooking is fun. You just raise them in a household where you have a lot of fun cooking and they absorb that and it becomes something that they value as well. And it seems like this, with the dynamics you're just describing with this magical and, and delight within a team is, you know, if, if you have that atmosphere and you have people on the team who conduct their interviews that way and have that curiosity, I have to imagine that that gets absorbed by other people on the team. And it does become this thing that kind of spreads and becomes, you know, some momentum behind it. So it's, it's one of those things that's like, it seems like a lot of teams say it. It's, it seems like it's hard for a lot of teams to do it. Um, I'm not sure if you have advice on how to help people actually get this one going. Absolutely. So I, I think this this is on on us as researchers, perhaps more so even than than others. Um, I absolutely agree with the fact that this type of attitude is is somewhat contagious in a good way, and so definitely the first step is to uh, to get some of that from from children, whoever that is for you. It can be your inner child, it can be uh, your actual children, um, your own children, uh, or, or someone else's child. It doesn't, it doesn't really matter. Um, the next step is, is you know, not to be a blocker or not to hinder the magic that your interview participants see, um, not to discount their experiences or what they view as as delightful again if we truly aim to be the voice of our users then we shouldn't be discounting even ideas that might seem preposterous to us as as researchers because we have this uh, magic filter um which we should remove essentially by believing that that can be the case um and so the steps are essentially, you know, first of all, connecting with that inner child and, and, and again, being accepting of that. And then the second step is to, to empathetically listen to your users and, and look for those moments of delight and not discount them in interviews and speak to extreme users in some cases or listen to extreme cases, not just the means, not just the averages, uh, not just the prototypical uh, profile of or persona of someone. Again, it's okay to deviate from from those things. Um, Sometimes by tapping into those extremes, um, you you can suddenly find those magical or inspiring moments that that you're looking for. Um, And I also I would also suggest that you know, any product team, um, at least where it's relevant, and I, I'm hard-pressed to think of a, of a case where it wouldn't be relevant, set a goal to continue to iterate on something until that's the feeling that, that people have. Um, and by that, I mean a feeling that this is almost, almost magical, almost, you know, difficult to, to comprehend. Um, some companies have done this repeatedly, um, Disney being an obvious example, um, Apple have, you know, accomplished this several, several times. Um, I can think of, of many examples. I mean, the fact that Amazon can send anything to my house within uh, a day is, is magical, uh, to me in many ways. Um, and we all interpret magic in different ways. And, 
and that's okay. So let's let's you know let's not focus solely on needs and wants and pain points because that's mm-hmm. another thing, right? If we only focus in interviews on on pain and needs and what's missing, we will never find uh, those those magical uh, magical things that that people hope to get. Um, and this is a huge challenge for researchers. How do, how do you get to those topics in interviews? I'm not sure I have the answers. This is very difficult. I'm, I, I'm not sure that people will consciously request things that they view as magical. But as I've been saying, you know, throughout um, our, our discussion today, um, you, you need to start somewhere. You need to start somewhere. There's a, there, there, I, I know where we should start. I'm not sure where we should end. That, that's maybe for you know another another time, <laughs> another discussion. Um, but we do need to start at that point where we return to believing in in magic and focusing on that. Um, I'm not sure that answered the question because again, I'm not sure where this should all end. But hopefully, I gave I gave people a few ideas about where they can kind of start. Yeah, that was super helpful. Absolutely. All right. So to summarize, keep your eyes on the prize, find the method in the madness, tell it like it is, be a good host, and last but not least, but not least, believe in magic. Thanks for listening to Awkward Silences, brought to you by User Interviews. Theme music by Fragile Gang. Editing and sound production by Carrie Boyd. <laughs>